From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA. This is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And joining me for this edition is Father Colonel Joe Fleury of the United States Army. Father Fleury, welcome. Thank you, sir. Uh, Father Flory, you are the oldest serving U.S. Army chaplain. Is that correct, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, how long have you been in the Army as a chaplain? Been in for 32 years plus. So came in in 1988 under President Reagan as our Commander-in-Chief. <laughs> wow. And if I may ask, how old are you, sir? I am 69 years young. So... Um, as some of you may know, there's a mandatory retirement age for military and for all officers, in fact, 62. So I've been extended now for seven plus years on active duty, now still wearing boots and the uniform. You must be good at your job. <laughs> I don't know about that, sir. Um, obviously, there's a great need because of the shortage of Catholic chaplains in the Army and all of our services. So I've been blessed, privileged, and honored to continue serving on active duty. Now, let me clarify, are you the oldest chaplain in the Army or throughout the entire military? I was told that I'm the oldest active duty chaplain in the entire Department of Defense to include Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and now Space Command. <laughs> the, the, absolutely. 32 years. So in that time, and you mentioned the chaplain shortage, You've been in there long enough to see the impact of the lack of priests available on active duty. Yes, sir. So um, when I came on board in 1988, we were approximately 220 Catholic chaplains in the Army. And we thought it was the end of the world then. Um, and over the last 30-some years, we have drawn down now because of the shortage to approximately 75 Catholic chaplains to serve our entire army throughout the world. Um, no such thing as a Catholic, Protestant, Jewish position, but the military strives for a denominational balance. So Catholics make up approximately 25%, one quarter, of the armed forces. So that should be reflective in terms of our chaplain corps numbers. So presently there are approximately, I believe, let's say about 1,400 active duty chaplains. So one quarter of them should be Catholic chaplains in terms of the denominational balance. And we're nowhere near that. Right, should be about 350. Yes, sir. And so uh, what is the effect of that? Uh, the men and women in uniform go without uh, access to the sacraments, without being able to go to Mass every Sunday, without being able to go to confession? Yes, sir. So the effect depends upon where you're at, the locality. So in terms of limited resources, the priority for placing Catholic chaplains would always be in the combat zone in uh, installations that are overseas where there might be some linguistic and cultural challenges to uh, one professing and expressing their faith. Um, and then the third tier, as I'd like to say, would be the assignments here in CONUS in the continental United States. So um, 
there's a lot to balance in terms of our leadership and obviously the placing of Catholic chaplains is of strategic importance to the uh, the chief of chaplains in his office. And how has your work changed over the years? I would expect you're a lot busier now than you were in 1988. Yes, sir. So um, in most places, um, if an installation or a community is fortunate and blessed to have a Catholic chaplain, um, he is responsible for the entire installation, not only the particular military unit that he is assigned to or embedded. So he is always doing additional duties. And what that means basically is chaplains in the army are assigned at the lowest level of the battalion. So uh, a new priest coming into the system, into the Corps, would more than likely be assigned in a battalion. But oh, by the way, he's also going to be responsible for the Garrison Catholic program, which uh, if you do the math, you know, one quarter <laughs> of the people on that base are going to be in name, nominally Catholic. So there's a, a greater responsibility placed on our Catholic chaplains opposed to some of the other faith denominations. Give us the overview on all the places you've served. I know you can't give me all of them, but uh, going back since 1988, where are some of the places okay. that you've served? The last time I counted, sir, um, I served in 27 different localities or places. So my younger brother said, Joe, you can't hold down a steady job, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, is there's a, <laughs> okay, you got me. <laughs> but uh, I started out um, this journey at our officer basic course for chaplains in Fort Monmouth, uh, and the school is no longer there. And then first assignment was all the way out in the Pacific Northwest at Fort Lewis, now Joint Base uh, Lewis McCord. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, from there, went over to uh, Korea and was there during the first Gulf War for an extended period of time, about 18 months on the DMZ, um, was with the Light Infantry Unit, um, didn't have a Humvee or a vehicle. Um, what you carried on your back is what you lived out of. So it was the coldest <laughs> experience of my life. Those winds would come down from the north and uh, living in a little pup tent when we were lucky with a little stove heater, it was, it was pretty cold. but. Uh, from there, actually went south to Panama to fall out. So it was there right after the invasion of uh, the country with uh, Noriega and uh, worked through some things there. And then uh, come back to the States for a little bit. But during the course of career, served uh, numerous times in Germany, in uh, Italy, uh, in the Middle East, Afghanistan. Um, just trying to think. Yeah. So. Wow, that's quite a, a series of tours there. Let's go to um, Panama and talk a little bit about that. Yes, sir. You were present when the, did you go in with the Army or were you already no, in Panama? No, I came in right after, I see. after the invasion, yeah. So um, obviously it was a rather tense situation um, and the dust hadn't settled yet. Um, but there was a lot of bridge building to be done with the people of Panama and of course with the, the government officials. And the military of course is one instrument of our United States government. And uh, we, we had a lot of challenges to deal with, everything from security to uh, you know reestablishing good rapport with the people. 
so Panama, uh, I would expect, is heavily Catholic. Yes, sir. And did a Catholic U.S. Army chaplain find a special role in that effort to uh, bring conciliation, reconciliation after the invasion? Yes, sir. So I was called upon a couple of times to meet with the local officials, both civil and ecclesial. And um, through the command chaplain one time, we were able to set up a uh, working business dinner in terms of building rapport with the, the local archdiocese and the, um, the military. So it uh, was a very powerful occasion, and it was uh, a great start to what I think was very uh, successful in terms of repairing relationships. And uh, I'll never forget one particular incident where the Archbishop of Panama told the story where um, he had to take sanctuary in the papal nuncio for his own safety and security because uh, there was a hit out on him by the Panamanian government. So um, the nuncio received word that Noriega was going to turn himself in to the embassy. And so the archbishop was asked to leave. So as the archbishop was going out the back door of the nuncio, uh, Noriega was coming in the front door. So. Uh, I'll never forget that story, uh, the Archbishop relayed to all of us, but that would be a little, I think, footnote in history. Now, let me get this straight. Noriega had put a hit out on the Archbishop. Yes, sir. Yeah. And so when Noriega is coming into the uh, nunciature, mm-hmm. the Archbishop's going out the back door. Yes, sir. The, the very same Archbishop that Noriega. Noriega was trying to uh, take out. <laughs> the Archbishop, what was his name? McGrath, Archbishop McGrath. Actually, he was an American, born in Trenton, New Jersey, I understand, and um, later was assigned there, and I believe his parents were what they called Zonians, meaning they were um, born in the Panama Canal Zone, which was a three-mile sector along each side of the canal that was actually American territory within the nation of Panama, yeah. Uh, And his name was McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H. Yes, sir. And uh, so Archbishop McGrath has a hit out on him, a contract on his head, and uh, he's uh, taking refuge at the nunciature. Uh, And then Noriega decides he wants to take refuge there, so Archbishop McGrath goes out the back door and... Noriega comes in the front door. Yes, sir, the hunter and the hunted. <laughs> and I am told that the uh, the sisters who worked at the nuncio only had enough time to change the sheets in the bedroom. <laughs> oh, boy, what a story. That didn't come out at the time. No, sir, that's just a little footnote in history. So tell me about your experience in the Middle East. Uh, you were there for Gulf War One? No, I served in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom in uh, 2005 to 2006. So of my 32 years in military service, it was the best year of my life. Oh, really? Yes, sir. In Afghanistan, in the in middle of the war? In Afghanistan, in the middle of the war. Not that anybody in their right mind would ever want to go to war, but there was no better place to serve to be a priest and a chaplain than in the war zone. Um, 
the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, you know. So it was just a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to minister and to um, take care of our troops. So I had already, you know, um, been promoted to lieutenant colonel, so I was rather senior in rank, and I was the um, deputy joint task force chaplain. However, when we, we got to Afghanistan, we went from six priests to two priests for the entire country. So my boss said, Flory, you are out of here, and I am sending you throughout the country just to take care of our, our Catholic needs for the soldiers. So Roger, yes, sir. So it was just phenomenal living out of Chinook helicopters going all over the country and uh, ministering, you know, sacraments and celebrating Eucharist with those, you know, in harm's way as we were <laughs> taken incoming. Okay, so let me get this straight. You were, were you already in Afghanistan when you got the order? Where were you when you were told that you were out of here? Uh, I was already in Afghanistan, yeah. So I was originally signed to something called the Jock, the Joint Operations Center, which is the headquarter for all operations. And basically it's a staff position, uh, 12-hour shifts, and you monitor the, the battlefield um, throughout the entire day, night and day, you know, 24-7. Uh, throughout the country. Yes, sir, and to, to manage religious support. But again, with the shortage of Catholic assets, the commander relieved me of that responsibility, and he sent me out to the, the battlefield to deliver, you know, uh, sacraments and celebrate Eucharist. So you're living out of a helicopter and going hopscotching around the country to these various uh, battle sites. Yes, sir. What was that like? Um, it was phenomenal. Uh, in one sense, surreal. You know, as a little boy, you you hear st you, I heard stories about Second World War and Korean War from my father and grandfather, but then to actually live that story in another time and age, um, the reality of it just comes pressing home to the mind and heart. Um, it was, as I say, one of the greatest experiences of my life in terms of. Um, you know, helping people in life and death situations. In a situation where servicemen and women are confronting ultimate life and death issues, yes, uh, did you find there was a heightened sense of spirituality? Were folks more forthcoming in confession, for example? Yes, sir. Uh, most definitely, yeah. So I think when um, human beings are confronted with their mortality, um, they have to deal with existential questions of existence and uh, those types of things. So even those um, who were not necessarily from a religious faith background um, had to deal with their mortality and wondered, you know, what's it all about and where is this going and where am I going? So it was a, a fabulous opportunity, I think, for grace and for um, being open to the Spirit and to um, finding God's presence in a rather difficult situation. Did non-Catholic servicemen seek you out on occasion to talk about these matters? Oh, very often, sir, yes. So again, um, chaplains of all faith backgrounds uh, are short in a combat zone. I mean, there's, you know, Afghanistan's a big country, 
and there's only so many chaplains uh, who were assigned there. So very often we would also counsel, you know, non-Catholic soldiers. Um, but of course we would also, you know, provide Catholic sacramental ministry to our Catholic folks and sometimes have non-denominational, you know, religious services, reading from scripture and just encouraging all of our troops, either with, you know, good words from the Bible or just, uh, you know, <laughs> from a secular perspective too, just to let them know that um, you're concerned about them. I often say that, um, you know, chaplains represent something human and humane in an institution that can be rather cold and impersonal. And even for those who don't have a particular belief in God or faith background, the chaplain is still a person of hope light and inspiration, just from even a humanitarian uh, point of view. You represent something that um, they're not experiencing their lives right now, especially in combat. And I suppose a lot of that has to do with the fact that the chaplain is the only officer there they can go to and talk to without word getting back to the command. Yes, sir. So one of the unique things about uh, being a chaplain is the role of confidentiality. So very different from a soldier going to a social worker or a psychologist. So what the soldier reveals in confidence stays in confidence behind closed doors, never to be taken back to the command. So if you would share with us a couple of experiences pre-battle and post-battle in Afghanistan, when you encountered uh, the troops, the servicemen, uh, whether Catholic or not. Yeah. So um, very interesting dynamic in um, conflict. So it's either eerily, peacefully quiet um, or, quote, all hell is breaking loose. So it's, it's quite a dynamic to walk between. Um, of course, you're always on edge because you never know um, what to expect. And the unexpected does happen in, in conflict. You know, the enemy has a say in the battle too. So um, there's always that tension, but um, it was rather interesting to see how the troops would use their, quote, downtime uh, productively um, you know, before battle or later after battle in terms of recovering from the incident. So, um, very different. Typically, how long would it take to recover from a battle, psychologically and spiritually, if you weren't physically wounded? Well, I'm not sure that one ever fully recovers from battle, from war. Um, that is... Luggage, baggage, that's an experience that we always take with us. Never be den to be denied. Uh, but we move on from it as best as we can. And one of the things that the chaplain can do, uh, not only in combat, but just in, in daily life, you know, at the installation at the garrison, is to help our, our troops develop coping skills to be more resilient and leading a rather stressful life. So obviously, uh, it doesn't get too much more stressful in combat when you're taking income and being shot at. 
Um, but even in normal life, we all deal with you know various levels of stress, everything from traffic to paying bills to <laughs> everything that's gone on. And you know we we need to have skills in terms of resiliency. So stress is not going away. We know that, but. Uh, and lots of things we can control, they're beyond our control, but we can control our response to stress. Well, we've long heard about post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress syndrome, but one phenomenon that's been recognized recently in recent years is moral injury. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that uh, some of the guys that you counseled uh, uh, came back with what we now know as moral injury, that is having made a decision that ran against one's moral beliefs in a high-stakes situation, which uh, almost sounds like a description of combat. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I think one of the things we can do as chaplains and as priests is to help people deal with moral injury. And especially from our Catholic perspective, we have a beautiful sacrament called Reconciliation. Um, it's an opportunity to experience healing, forgiveness, and reconciling with ourselves, with other people, and of course with the good Lord. So um, that's one of the, I think, uh, tools in our kit bag that we very often go to in terms of dealing with um, you know, the brokenness, not only in the body, but also the soul and spirit. Healing takes time. So let me ask you this. You're a Catholic priest. You've been a priest. You're a Marist. Yes, sir. For how long have you been a priest? was ordained in 84, so 36 years, and um, actually joined the Marist, the Minor Seminary in 1966. And actually, one of our brother Marist priests was killed in Vietnam, Khe San, February 22nd, 1968. And I happened to be one of the altar servers at his funeral mass. And that made such an impression on me that that's where the inspiration or the seed for this particular vocation within a vocation came from. So I prayed, good Lord, if it be your will, I'd like to continue Father Bob Brett's ministry in the military. And 20 years later, in 1988, I was finally given permission by the provincial, by the Marist, to, uh, to be a military chaplain. Father Bob Brett? Yes, sir. Buried, buried over here in Arlington. And a little footnote. So this is the first time that I've been uh, stationed in the National Capital Region. I left the area when I finished my diaconate studies and was able to avoid D.C. throughout my entire military career, but it caught up with me with this assignment. But then this past uh, Memorial Day, I had the blessing of planting the American flag on Father Bob Brett's tomb grave over at Arlington Cemetery. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What comes back around. Amazing. Complete, Amazing. Complete circle. A Catholic priest preaches the good news, which is heavily based on peace. Jesus said, I give you peace. Yes, sir. And yet you are in the United States military, which sometimes has to wage war. Yes, sir. How do you reconcile that? Well, let's never forget that chaplains are non-combatants. So we are not warriors. We might be deemed or termed spiritual warriors, but that we do not carry weapons, and of course we do not fire them. And of course in the combat situation, we have a chaplain assistant 
whose job is to protect the chaplain under those circumstances. So um, I like to think of myself as trying to put myself out of a job. Um, like a good doctor who wants and works for the day when there will be no more disease or need for doctors or medical services, we too as chaplains work and pray for that day when we will no longer need armies and have to go to war. But sadly, we're not there yet. We all know that. Um, and sometimes um, we are called upon to defend um, people. And so um, I know there's a lot of discussion now, especially in recent months, about uh, relooking the whole just war theory. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, let's never forget that war is an evil. Um, we want to do away with it. We want to work with it, but we're not quite there. And we do have a moral obligation to provide religious and spiritual support for those brave men and women who have volunteered to defend us and our nation. Tell me just a little bit about, little bit about the Marists. What is your charisma? What, what are the Marists all about? Okay, the Marists are a religious order congregation that were uh, founded in 1836 uh, with the approval from the Vatican. Um, so a relatively young order in the history of the church, given 2,000 years. Um, and of course, if uh, you look back at European history, that was a rather difficult time coming out of the French Revolution. And um, a lot of religious authorities, the Jesuits, you know, were suppressed. So our founder, um, through the inspiration and the guidance of Mary, the mother of God, the mother of Jesus, uh, wanted to do things in the spirit of Mary, to bring a Marian face to a world that was quite troubled coming out of rather chaotic times after the French Revolution. So um, we were open to any ministry, uh, but to do it in the spirit of Mary, quiet, behind the scenes, not drawing attention to ourselves, uh, but getting the job done and giving Jesus to the world. So our Mary's vocation is none other than Mary's vocation, and that is to present or to give Jesus to our, our world that desperately needs Jesus, especially as Prince of Peace. So, Father Joe Flurry, the oldest chaplain in the United States military, you've been renewed. You're going to stay in the Army for how much longer? Yes, sir. So, um, almost 70 years young, next birthday. <laughs> so, I've uh, just been asked by our Army Chief of Chaplains to uh, stay on for another assignment for another two years. So, uh, I'm honored and blessed to have the health uh, to be able to continue serving uh our God and our country. And will you stay here in D.C., or is it possible you might be moved again? Oh, I'm anticipating a, a move this coming summer, sir. Any idea where? I do, but I probably shouldn't say at this point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Things change an awful lot. <laughs> uh, I hear you. Father Joe Fleury, colonel in the United States Army, a chaplain in the United States Army, the oldest chaplain uh, on active duty in the United States military. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Thank you, sir. It's been a privilege, honor, and a blessing. And thank you for your service. Thank you.
The Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, the AMS, was established by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985. Her mission, to provide for the free exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, the civilian workforce employed by the federal government beyond U.S. borders, and the families of these populations, making the AMS the church's only truly global archdiocese. Among pastoral services provided by the AMS under Archbishop Timothy Brolio, celebration of the sacraments, endorsement of chaplains, evangelization and religious education, sacramental record-keeping, a thriving seminarian program, pastoral visitation by the bishops to military installations worldwide, and more. All told, 1.8 million Catholics all over the world depend on the AMS based in Washington, D.C., to meet their spiritual and sacramental needs. The AMS receives no government funding. She depends entirely on private gifts for survival. For more information, visit millarch.org.